have three readings this morning. The first is Isaiah 62, verses 10 to 12. Pass through, pass through through the gates, prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway, remove the stones, raise a banner for the nations. The Lord has made proclamation to the ends of the earth. Say to daughter Zion, see your saviour comes. See his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. They will be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you will be called sought after, the city no longer deserted. The second reading is from Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 to 10. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river and to the ends of the earth. And then the last reading is Matthew 21, verses 1 to 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring one to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They bought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. This is God's word. Good morning. Uh, my name's Phil. Uh, I'm the Associate Minister here. Let's, uh, let's pray. Let's pray as we turn to God's Word together. Our Father God, all the many things that we are aware of in our lives, all the many needs we bring with us this morning, the concerns, the hopes, the fears, we pray that you would help us to see the Lord Jesus more clearly as we look now at Matthew 21. But help us to do more than just to understand some words about a man. Help us to see in him the answer to our greatest needs as humans. And we ask this for his glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we want leaders to be inspiring and brilliant. If you want a leader, you want them to be worth following, worth looking up to. 
I was listening to a, a podcast on Ronald Reagan recently. Um, given some of you are quite young, he was an American president in the 1980s. And, uh, but he was, a, he was an ex-actor, and he was a man who really understood the need to project the image of the president. So he never, ever, ever appeared except in a suit and a tie, because he wanted to look presidential, to inspire people. Um, and most famously, even on the day when he was uh, almost assassinated, when he was shot, everything he did and said was calculated to, to inspire people, to, to seem presidential, even as he's bleeding in hospital. The most famous is his, uh, uh, when, he, when he spoke to his wife shortly after having been shot, his first words were to her, honey, I'm sorry I forgot to duck. I mean, just brilliant. You know, the, <laughs> the, the man just knew that his role was to, to inspire no matter what was happening, he must appear presidential. And we want our leaders to be like that. But actually, we also want them to be men of the people who don't lord it over us. We want men and women who are not high and mighty. And so we admire Zelensky in his hoodie suffering alongside his people in Kiev, and we abhor and are disgusted by the, the kleptocratic oligarchs of Putin's inner circle enriching themselves at everybody else's expense. And I think this is actually why there's such an enduring interest about what on earth Boris actually got up to in, in Downing Street during the lockdown. I, I mean, if you watch any of the Commons inquiry this week, he just seemed utterly fed up. Why am I still being asked about this? I mean, he even brushed his hair. He was so, he was so annoyed with everything. And, <laughs> What? He just, he, you could see he just couldn't understand why are you so bothered about whether I kept the rules I imposed on others? And Boris, it seems to me, has always understood the need for pomp and grandeur. But I, you just wonder, has he ever understood that we also want leaders who appear to have integrity and humility? We want leaders who look like they want to serve us, not just lead us. I don't know what the, the truth behind all of that is. Sometimes it's hard to get behind it with the media, but the impressions aren't great, and they matter to us. Leadership matters in the 21st century. We want leaders who are worth following and who lead with integrity. And as we read about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, we're going to be reminded about what kind of a king Jesus is. He is a glorious king who was able to save, but he's also a humble leader who didn't come grasping for power, greedily accumulating wealth, but one who reached down to help others, one who used his power and his position to pour out everything to serve. Now, I think these verses are particularly important in this cultural moment for those of us who call ourselves Christians. Because I think many of us worry that when we speak to friends and colleagues and family about Christianity, we are selling something no one wants to buy. Toxic goods, in many people's view. You know, Jesus' teaching on sexuality in particular is increasingly seen as harmful, as something which prevents people from flourishing as humans. But actually, at the same time, we are acutely aware that there is a leadership crisis in our world. And it sometimes feels that as humans at the moment, you have to make a choice between effective, brutal dictators or progressive leaders who are confused and weak. Sadly, I think it sometimes seems like we have to make that choice in the church as well. But Matthew is going to show us what true leadership looks like. 
And he's going to renew our confidence that Jesus is the savior and leader that our families, our friends, our colleagues, our culture, and before any of them, you and I ourselves, he is the leader we deeply need. And so whether it's for the first time or whether this is a familiar truth, my prayer is that our response as we hear these words would be a renewed desire to trust him, to love him, and to follow him much, much more closely than we do right now. Okay, uh, turn back with me to to Matthew 21. Um, We read the the Old Testament references uh, to give us some context, but we're going to spend our time in Matthew 21. And as Scott said, uh, we're slightly cheating. We're jumping ahead to Palm Sunday because we're going to be going through Easter this year through the eyes of Matthew. Now, Matthew is a former tax collector and one of Jesus' disciples. And he had a particular interest in Jesus' teachings. There are seven big blocks of teaching in Matthew and in Jesus' fulfillment of the Old Testament. Uh, Matthew's gospel is full of allusions and quotations to the Old Testament. In fact, uh, people differ on exactly how many quotations there are, but it's more than any other gospel. He is absolutely full of how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament promises because he understood that the fulfillment of all the promises God had been making to his people since the Garden of Eden and through the whole Old Testament, the fulfillment of all those promises is found in Jesus Christ. And the heart of that fulfillment is that God would send a king to save. So you've got the the points on on your sheets. Um, Firstly, he is humble and he comes to save. He's humble and he comes to save. Look with me at verse 1, Matthew 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. Now, most of Jesus' ministry took place up in the north of Israel, near where he was born. Now, however, he's making his final journey south to Jerusalem. If you, if you look across at uh, chapter 20, verse 17, uh, you'll see this, this final declaration. Chapter 20, 17, now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. And on the way, he took the 12 aside and said to them, we're going to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests, the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and then he will rise again. He's, he's saying, right, this is it. We're going to Jerusalem. This is the big moment. Everything's been building towards this. And actually, that shouldn't surprise us. We should be expecting this journey, because if you flick back with me to the very beginning of Matthew's gospel, flick back to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1, just a few pages back. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the last bit of flicking we'll do. Keep your finger in Matthew 21, but flick back to Matthew 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of of David. At the very beginning of his gospel, Matthew tells us Jesus is the son of David, the great king, the Messiah. That's the anointed savior king. Messiah, Christ, that's just the Greek word for the Hebrew Messiah, the anointed king. This is who Jesus is. And so we ought to expect the king descended from David to go to the city of David to be crowned on the throne of David. And at last, it's happening. Jesus is is going to confirm what others have, have wondered and whispered about since the very first days of his ministry. Is this the Messiah? 
Is this the king we were told to expect? And now he comes to claim his throne. But nothing, nothing will be as people expect. And what a way to enter. People sometimes call this the triumphal entry. It is anything but. Uh, spot the obbon out. Anybody? Uh, uh, all the others, it is the donkey, just in case you're wondering. It is the donkey, is the obbon out. All the others are official vehicles of, uh, of King Charles. So you've got the land out, top right, that... Um, from his uh, wedding to Diana, oops, uh, bottom left, the Golden State carriage where he'll be um, conveyed on his coronation day and then um, the official state Rolls Royce, which I think just looks like a stretched old-fashioned London cab, but maybe that's just me. And then you have a donkey. Now, sometimes you see King Charles on a polo pony, not so much these days, but you used to, but never on a donkey. Donkeys are not majestic animals. There's nothing glorious, impressive, and kingly about a donkey. And so what Jesus is doing here in Matthew 21 is the equivalent of King Charles arriving for his coronation at Westminster Abbey in one of these, a reliant Robin, reliant being one of the most ironic titles a car has ever been given. So why? What is Jesus playing at? Why does he undermine his royal credentials in this way? Well, he's consciously fulfilling what the Old Testament taught about God's promised king. That's why Matthew gives us these two quotations. Firstly, from Isaiah 62 and then from Zechariah 9, as we read. Let's look at Matthew 21, 4 to 5. All this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. See, say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Isaiah personifies Zion, that's a Jerusalem, as a, as a woman, daughter Zion, God's people. And as we've seen in the, in the last few months, working through Isaiah, they are broken, they are lost, and they are in need of saving. But now God calls them, lift up your eyes and look to the horizon. And as they look, they see him coming. Their king, their saviour. But he is not on a mighty war horse riding at the head of an army. He is not in pomp and splendor in a glorious, glittering coach. He's plodding along the road in a donkey, a scruffy beast of burden. And he does that because he is gentle. It's the same word used in Matthew 5, 4 as meek. The meek will inherit the earth. But he comes as one who is not here to lord it over the people, but as one who is here to serve the people in love. I just read a, a book called Poilu. Excuse me if I've pronounced that wrong, uh, Joel. It's the First World War diaries of a French barrel maker who survived the entirety of the war as uh, a common soldier. And it is just staggering the amount of suffering that he and his comrades endure through the mud and the carnage from Ypres to Verdun. But what actually really stands out most in Poilu is just the appalling treatment the soldiers receive from most of their officers. And there's one particular chapter where it's, it's uh, February and they're, they're marching to, to the front lines in torrential rain that soaks them to the skin. And just as they reach the trenches and start to endure the, the hellish bombardment, the weather changes and a vicious cold front sweeps in and freezes their soaking clothes. 
And for the next week, they endure unimaginable misery in the cold and the shelling and the blood and the mess. And finally, they're relieved and they march with more stagger back, mile after mile, to the rear, to where they're to rest. And they, uh, they go to the courtyard of this little chateau and they arrive there and collapse. And the officers go inside the chateau to sleep in the bedrooms and the men are left outside without a thought or a care for what will happen to them. And the sleet is coming down. And they huddle together, shivering to try and sleep. But after hours, it's just too cold for them even to sleep. So in the, in the wee hours of the morning, they start marching around the courtyard to stop them getting frostbite in their feet, whereupon the windows are flung open on the first floor bedroom and the colonel screams out for them to stop marching because it's disturbing his sleep. Now, the issue is not with officers or with the French, but with humans, with you and me. We're always tempted to exalt ourselves and forget others, to serve ourselves, to care about ourselves, and, well, we are at the center of our own little worlds, and everything revolves around me. And when you think about it, isn't that the source of the vast majority of the conflict in your family, in your place of work? I mean, I know for myself, the thing that most often makes me angry or frustrated with my family is when they don't seem to want to serve me. When they don't seem to get that, actually, they should just fit in with my needs a whole lot more. But the Old Testament has this ridiculous promise that the true king would come to his coronation gentle and lowly and riding on a donkey. For the true king would be a humble king, a gentle king who came to serve and to give himself for his people. When you turn back to Isaiah 62, only that first line is quoted here, say to daughter Zion, but in the New Testament, they, they generally want you to, to look at the verses around. And when you turn to Isaiah 62, you understand why Jesus comes so humbly. Because the line in Isaiah continues, say to daughter Zion, see your saviour comes. That's why Jesus comes gently, because he has not come to judge in wrath. He's not come to rule in power. He's not come to exploit in greed. He's not come to glory in pride. He comes in gentleness, in meekness, in humility, because he comes to serve, to save. That is his mission. The king who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so when, even when the only way for his people to be saved was for him to die the most shameful, humiliating, agonizing death, enduring the wrath of God on the cross. He was willing to stoop that low for you and for me. And because he is that kind of king, because he's that kind of king, you can trust him when he says to you the words of Matthew 11, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. See, this king didn't come to set you a standard you can't possibly keep. He didn't come to, to take from you things that you can't afford to give. He didn't come to crush you with burdens that you can't possibly lift. He came humbly to save you. 
He's humble and comes to save. But secondly, he's exalted and worthy of praise. I have, to, I have to admit, I haven't really spotted what's going on in the second part before. I've been so focused when I've looked at this passage before on the humility that I haven't noticed what is easiest to, to miss in any passage, which is what is not there. I wonder if you spotted what is not said and not done that should happen in the second half of this passage. Given what we've just learned, what should happen and doesn't? Look with me at verses 6 to 8. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the roads. The crowds went ahead, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. So the donkey and the colt are brought to Jesus. The disciples throw their coats on them, and Jesus sits on the coats and heads into Jerusalem. And as we might say these days, things pretty quickly go viral. Uh, now, Passover is a time where there's a massive influx of pilgrims to Jerusalem. So the, the normal population of between 50 and 80,000 swelled to perhaps 250,000. So there would have been a steady stream of crowds on the roads heading into Jerusalem. And, and word quickly spreads to, through them what is going on. And people just begin throwing their clothes on the ground for him to ride over waving palm branches and singing his praises in verse 9. So what should a man who's humble enough to ride a donkey do when people praise him? How should he respond? What do you expect him to do? I mean, when Cornelius bows before the apostle Peter in Acts 10, Peter says, get up, I'm only a man. Uh, when the crowds in Lystra start singing the praises of Paul and Barnabas, they tore their clothes and shouted, stop, stop, we're just humans like you. When John fell in worship before the mighty angel in Revelation 19, the angel rebuked him and said, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you. But Jesus says nothing. He lets them praise him. Hosanna means, oh, save us. Something you cry to God. It's related to Jesus' own name. The Lord saves Psalm 118 is a psalm in which God's people praise the anointed king in a procession to the altar where the praise of the king and the praise of God kind of just merges into one. And the last line from Psalm 148 is a psalm of ringing praise for the God who has come to save his people. So why on earth would the humble one who comes to serve allow people to throw their coats on him on the floor for him to ride over and praise him as if he's God? because he is it is right that he comes to serve humbly but it is also right that we sing his praises and cast all we have and are before him and this is not the forced cheering of the North Korean crowd just desperately aware I'd better not be the first person to stop clapping what this is is sanity it's just sanity look if a firework encounters a flame <laughs> just explodes if sun shines from behind a rain shower a rainbow appears if lightning scorches the sky thunder will rumble you don't have to force those things to happen it's just natural 
And if humans encounter God in human flesh, come to trample evil and bring forgiveness and eternal life, well, praise should just erupt from our lips. It's just natural. Jesus isn't forcing these people to praise him. It would be wrong. It would be perverse. It would be wicked for them to encounter God's Savior King and for their lips to stay closed. Actually, this is just a rare moment of sanity in human history. And these verses, this second half, that it reminds us that the one who comes to humbly serve is the mighty king who is worthy of all praise. And when you think about it, actually, he does need to be this kind of king if he's going to answer that cry, Hosanna, save us. I mean, if he is going to take on the forces of evil and crush them into the dust, if he's going to absorb the unbearable, unquenchable, unimaginable furnace of God's wrath for sin, if he's going to submit humbly to death's eternal embrace but somehow burst free to eternal life, then he is going to need to be a mighty, praiseworthy, divine, majestic king. He's going to need to be someone worthy of worship. Uh, sometimes when you're at lunch, the host presents you with a dilemma as they bring out not one but two tasty desserts, both of which you would like to gobble down. Uh, there is a sticky toffee pudding with a thick, hot caramel sauce. Ooh. But then there is chocolate mousse with whipped cream. They also offer a selection of fruit, but we don't need to worry about that, do we? But, and then they perceive the agonized look on your face and they utter some of the sweetest words in the English language. Would you like some of both? Yes, indeed, I would. Not just some, but lots, if that's all right with you. Look, when you come to Jesus, you don't have to choose. You don't have to choose between a, a leader who's, who's glorious enough to be worthy of worship and to be able to handle oh, the serious challenges that make us afraid and cry out, save us. You don't have to choose between a leader mighty enough for that and a leader kind enough to care for you and humble enough to serve you. Only a praiseworthy, glorious, mighty king has the power to save you. Only a humble, servant-hearted, loving king would be willing to go to the cross to do it. Now look, as, uh, as we close... Verses 10 to 11, they describe the actual arrival. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. The word stirred is just a little bit anemic, if I'm honest. It's far too mild. It's the, the word is from which we get seismic. It's used for the violent commotion of an earthquake. And actually, Matthew will record two more earthquakes. One at the moment Jesus dies, and another at the moment that he rises from the dead three days later. Jesus shakes the world. And the city asks, who is this? And the reply comes, interestingly, after all that's been sung and said in verse 9, the reply comes, he's the prophet from Galilee. And I think, I can't be sure, but I think Matthew wants us to say, yeah, but surely a bit more than that. Yeah. And he's wanting you and me to say, well, okay, who really is he then? I mean, obviously he's a prophet. He but is that all? If you get the truth 
of who he is, then you will trust him and you'll rejoice in him. Now, two specific ways. Firstly, you will trust and have confidence that he can save you. He really is mighty enough to deal with your sin and your judgment. Whoever you are and whatever you've done, his death on the cross is enough. So turn to him today and turn to him every day, regardless of how badly things are going, how badly you're failing. He's mighty enough to deal with your sin. So trust him. You can also hand over to him and cry out for his saving power for the other things that we fear might overwhelm us, not just God's judgment, but the other things in life. You can hand over to him the health scares, the financial troubles, the battles with sin, the struggle of children with additional needs, the painful relationships, all the things that we fear will overwhelm us. We can cry out, save us, Hosanna, because he is God's mighty king. He is big enough to handle those things and to help keep us through them. And then having trusted him yourself, have confidence he can help others. Tell others about Jesus, confident that he can save and he does save. Have confidence he can save you, but secondly, have confidence that he will be gentle with you. You see, sometimes I think that the reason we don't speak about Jesus to others is not that we don't think his death on the cross is not enough to save them from their sins, but actually it's we fear he's going to make their lives a whole lot harder perhaps unbearably so, with the demands he's going to place on them. Uh, We fear those who are in gay relationships, perhaps, or have complex, messy lives, or, or just whose lives are so far away from what the Bible sets out that the changes required to follow him would just be overwhelming and brutal. And we fear the message of Jesus will sound like, well, anything but good news, And that to follow him is just going to be the brutal requirement of radical change. Well, yes, life has to change, but we can trust the one who arrived for his coronation on a donkey to take a crown of thorns to reign on a cross. We can trust him to be kind and gentle and good. We can trust he's come to serve to bless and to save. We can trust he has come to bear our burdens, not to crush us. He comes to bring hope and help to all who turn to him with our messy, selfish, broken lives. Trust him, our gentle king. Let me pray. Our Lord God, we thank you for what Matthew shows of of who Jesus is. Thank you that he is a glorious king, worthy of our our every praise, our worship, our obedience. Thank you, too, that he is a gentle king who comes to serve and to bear our burdens. Help us to have confidence in this, to turn to him in our lives each day, to look to him confident that he loves us and he helps us. Help us also to have confidence to tell others about him knowing that to come to him is good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.